This is Omo. 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 Is this Yoko Omo? This is Omo. This is Omo. Chris Jacoby. Roseanne. Rivet Deloach. How are you? Uh, life is good, man. Uh, welcome everybody to Omo, the romance and reality of violin making. Yes, yes. Uh, we've got cool stuff today. Uh, balloons. Balloons. Uh, parades. Llamas. A lot of glitter. Lamas. And this guy named Christopher Rooning from Rooning and Sons and many other illustrious things. He will be joining us shortly. Yeah. 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 Uh, but Chris, what's the latest with you over there in Tacoma Park? Oh, man, I smashed hell out of my finger today. It's going to be interesting. I dropped a big old statue of naked people on it. If you want more details, I'm not going to give them because that makes me fascinating. That sounds like a regular Monday for you, buddy. <laughs> Nigga people all up on my hands. Uh, I bought some fantastic tone wood off of you. You did. And we're going to talk about that in the closer. I want to know more details about what you got. Okay. Yeah. So um, everybody stick around. We're going to be talking to Chris Rooning. This episode of Omo is brought to you in part by House of Note. Did you know that? I did. Aren't they up in St. Louis Park in Minnesota? They are. They are. And I talked with Jeff Anderson, the owner, recently, and he is feeling that crazy return to normal, brisk, end of May, beginning of June, all the stuff that happens. Rental seasons come in. Yeah. At the, like people making those sales at the end of the year, people picking up new instruments. He's, mm -hmm. uh, he's feeling the crazy up there, which is exciting. I don't know if you're getting that at your shop either. Uh, it's, it's starting to feel like, uh, like home again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're, you guys aren't doing the appointment only policy anymore. We did it for a while. We did uh, locked door appointment only. Yeah. Still trying to enforce appointments, but you know, walk-ins are coming. It's getting, yeah, it's getting yeah. crazy. So I'm glad to hear that energy is happening up at House of Note. Hope it's going all around the country like that. Thank you, House of Note, for your investment in the show. <laughs> and just a reminder that House of Note is a full-service violin shop serving the community at all levels, from the beginner student to the selective performer. Hey. Thank you. House. Of. Note. For. Your. In. Best. <laughs> in. The. Show. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> we rule. Thanks, also, Jeff. Thank you. Also, we have an update from Learning Trade Secrets. Yeah. Yeah. So our buddy Rodney and his family up in Ashland, Ohio, managed to host a few of his in-depth luthier education classes this year. Um, and, and these ones, because it was just him, they were related to bow making and bow repair. Uh -huh. repair. Um, and, and there's a few spots left for some upcoming bow classes, but uh, Anne wants us to know that they're prepping for a full return in 2022. The Moors and Learning Trade Secrets will be do a full return in 2022. That's great. Full return. Yes. Uh, they'll be teaching bow restoration and bow making, um, but with the return of traveling teachers, um, they'll soon be hosting classes like violin touch-up, advanced setup, instrument making once again. Yeah, guys. So be sure to check learningtradesecrets.com for their current offerings and check back as we all return to normalcy. Uh, you know, Calvin Coolidge coined that. My dad made me learn these things. I did not know that. Thank you, Calvin Coolidge. Thank you, Calvin Coolidge. Thank you, Learning Trade Secrets. Yes, thank you, Calvin, for supporting the show. So in the mid-90s, when I was a boy in Cincinnati and I was playing Suzuki, um, I, I, was a, I was a troubled youth. And what pulled me out of, of my juvenile delinquency was an ad in Strad and Strings magazine. That's what did it. Yes. Wow. And it, and it was it was from uh, Christopher Rooning's company, and it said violins of good taste, and it had a a monstrous face chewing on a fiddle. And I said to myself, you know what? I'm going to put down this crack pipe, and I'm going to turn my life around. Ah. And I went, 
one day I'll become. This is still all shit, Rosie. I'm mad. (laughs) Okay. So uh, uh, coming out of Brookline, Massachusetts, we've got Christopher Rooning joining us tonight on OMO. Uh, Chris Rooning is, if you're in the industry, you know who he is. Um, I hear that uh, he had some good training and and some good times with a, a real luminary, Charles Beer, in our industry. Um, when I think of who I send people to on the East Coast for a certificate, or if they have something difficult that they want to dial in on, um, you know, certification-wise, I think of Chris. I, I, I send them his way. Um, mm-hmm. And if you know Chris, uh, he enjoys cigars and silly socks and uh, a good joke. And uh, he's always available to give somebody a good eye um, if you're kind and if you're not pushy, to give somebody a good eye and some good advice on instruments mm-hmm. they're building. Um, and I've known Chris for, I, I guess I, I met you probably 10 years ago at a VSA when I was a wild-eyed youth uh, at the, the violin making school. Um, thank you so much for, for coming on and talking with us, man. Yeah, thank you, Chris. I'm happy to be talking to you guys. You know, uh, Chris, you're telling me what an influence I had on you, and it uh, makes me nervous because that means I've created yet another monster. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was making that up. I, yes. <laughs> but uh, we, we all know you are a creator of monsters, mm. Doc Frankenstein. Some of them I regret, I have to tell you, but some of them I'm very proud of. So I'm proud of you, even though you can be a monster from time to time. Joking. Oh, thanks, man. I actually, when I when I took the job with Voldemort in Omaha at Mosaica, uh, one of one of the people that had bought one of my violins from him uh, came in, and we met for the first time. And she said to me, "You know, Christopher Rooning looked over and saw my Jacoby violin and said." that's a decent fiddle. And I, uh, I, I was, I was pretty pleased with that. That was before we met. I would, I would guess that's 2008 or nine. Mm. Hey, Chris, uh, Chris Rooning, uh, you have had quite a week. What's going on with you this week? Um, well, I'm starting my final chapter. We're moving into a new building. Um, we had the movers finish the move today and now we've just got a whole pile of furniture benches books files um yeah it's it's rugs are on top of everything it's quite it's quite nutsy um but it's kind of fun because it'll be um my last shop since i bought the building i don't have to move again oh great how far have you moved from brookline 3.5 miles from boston to brookline oh okay okay Mm. fantastic okay so I imagine you are pretty tired. I'm okay. I'm perking up because I'm talking to young folk. Okay. okay. Good. <laughs> Yay, we're young folk. Um, so for people who are maybe less networked in and, and maybe on the periphery might know you because of the thing that comes to our inboxes uh, that we all want to look at the Terizio auctions. Uh, and, uh, every, uh, every time there's something up, it could be, you know, something really fine, you know, a really lovely instrument or something that needs some restoration work, maybe a German factory instrument. We've got stuff all over the map. Um, tell us a little bit about how you got involved in that back in the day and what you were envisioning then. Yeah. So, um, a good uh, friend of mine that I did a lot of business with named Dimitri Gindin was talking to me quite a bit about starting an auction company because, well, we both had the idea that things could be done better with better expertise and that, that could make, that, that it could be a successful business. Mm-hmm. I wasn't so interested in it because of the, of the um, sort of the logistics and, and the overhead and commitment it would take because I had already my main business was was taking all my time. But um, when eBay kind of came along and I was buying a few things frustratingly on eBay, I thought I thought that this could be 
the way to do it because we could do it with little uh, overhead, little a small staff. And um, I thought that the secret to doing it right would, would be to have this auto extend feature, which as far as I know, didn't exist where it was more like a real auction. The, yeah. um, you, you didn't have to have this technique of bidding the last millisecond. You would always have the opportunity to bid, uh, to respond to the last bid. So we had, um, we had our, uh, well, Dimitri and I, I proposed the idea to Dimitri and we, we thought, well, we're both too busy. We have to find somebody else. So we found a young guy to, um, to be our third partner. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, the rest is history. We, we had somebody, um, write this auto extend feature for us. And we had our first auction, which was decently successful. We worked pretty hard and, and, uh, it sort of, I think we were kind of in the right place at the right time. I don't want to take credit for changing the business because already auctions were kind of moving in a certain direction. Yeah. And uh, eBay was was pretty fruitful back then and became frustrating fast as soon as people noticed, as soon as PayPal became part of it. Um, And right as that switched over, Teresio appeared. It was... uh, Yeah. I didn't know you guys came up with the auto extend. That's a, uh, th- yeah, that's being used in a lot yeah. of different disciplines now. That was my idea, but I, 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 you know, as far as I know, there may, it, somebody else may have been doing it too. I, I don't know, but uh, that was, seemed to be a, a, a no brainer really. Yeah. I mean, that, that's not where it started. I mean, you, you, your parents were the, the Suzuki king and queen of the East coast. Uh, and, I kind of was aware of, uh, you know, the, the ruining family as a Suzuki kid in Cincinnati. Uh, you guys were known for having the best partial size violins. Yeah. Yeah. So I went to Baroque violin shop in Cincinnati and, Uh uh, man, if you, if you were a promising player, which, uh, I, I wasn't at that level, you know, where my parents were investing money, but you needed something that was really going to trade up and, and get you to conservatory, then you went to your parents in, in Boston. Yeah, that's how they started out. Yeah. And you started working with them at what age? So um, when so my parents uh, were some of the first folks to um, have Suzuki. We had Suzuki and his tour group actually stay at our house a few times when I was young. Shinichi himself, nice. Yeah, he and his and his tour group. He he actually taught me how to use chopsticks. Um, he gave me a number of that's, lessons. And, that's right. Um, but uh, they were looking for good quality small violins, and they they met a few different violin dealers, and then they finally met Primavera in mm. Philadelphia, who was really game to find little violins for them. So we periodically go down, me and my three sisters and parents, and. Um, my sisters would read all all day Saturday, and I'd sit and watch him, uh, Mr. Primavera, making violin bridges and fitting sound posts. Um, and when I was 12, he invited me to come down for the summer and be an apprentice. Wow. So I did that, and I swept the floor, and I cleaned his bench and um, stayed in his house. Um, his son was a was getting ready to go to Cremona. He was five years older than me. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, there was another kid that was there in the shop. Um, so yeah, that was, that was, that was how I got started. I was obsessed with, um, do, you know, fixing violins. I, I thought it was really, really neat. It is. Yeah. That's, that's the end of an era. I mean, you, you may be the, the youngest person I'm aware of that uh, at that age, at an age when an apprenticeship would have started, there was an opportunity to go work with somebody of Primavera's caliber. That's that's awesome, Chris. Yeah, well, that, that was a mixed bag, though, because uh, it, it wasn't very good training. It wasn't uh, the kind of training that, you know, uh, you would get at Salt Lake City or Chicago or North Bennett or something like that. Um, yeah. And... And, and actually there was, I mean, uh, being exposed to all of the B 
being in a violin shop and seeing violins and musicians and so forth was was great. But um, I really had to teach myself how to fix things properly as things went on, as things went on. Uh huh. Now, have you've made a, a violin, right? I've made a few. Uh, yeah. I, I was I was going to Cremona and working with Alfred Primavera uh, for uh-huh. a little bit and helping him make his kind of production line violins. Um, uh, that was that was another neat thing. I think I started doing that when I was maybe 16. And then not a lot older than that, you decided to purchase Ruining and Sons from your parents, correct? Yeah. So uh, it started out with a in our house. The, the workshop was my bedroom. And <laughs> and I think actually in, after I graduated from high school, we I just continued running the family shop which by then had moved into this into our Suzuki school. And then after a couple of years of that, I I decided to give my parents an ultimatum. Either they sell me the company or I'm moving on. <laughs> so nice. they they uh, grudgingly sold me the this to, well, at the time it was just a d- dinky little little violin shop, but I wanted to do it myself. So that's how Okay. Okay. Uh, are they still begrudging? No, they're proud and they're great and <laughs> okay. happy. And, <laughs> okay. yeah. So you got into this at 12 and uh, then Ruining and Sons happened. Then it became your place. And then at a later point, there was Teresio. Yeah. And um, also Carriage House happened. Can you tell us a little bit about Carriage House? Yeah, so it's a it's kind of the progression of a violin, the evolution of a violin shop, and um, mm-hmm. so we started selling student violins. We kind of grew. We outgrew Ithaca. We decided to move to Boston. Uh, we started getting into better quality instruments. Uh, pretty soon, I had twenty seven employees, and um, then I decided, well, I've been paying my dues. I think I need to downsize. So mm-hmm. at that point, I. I, I created Carriage House so that I could separate the student business from the better instruments because it really takes two different levels of, of well, craftsmanship in the workshop and yes. service, um, customer service, and focus. Um, yeah. And so I, I separated the two. And then I also had the idea in the back of my head that I would like to sell the student business at some point if I could figure out how. Um, okay. And then, and then, um, then I moved Carrot House to a different um, part of Boston, and then I I uh, sold it to Johnson Strings, and and that around the same time I I, I got sick and tired of the auction business, and um, yeah, wanted to focus on quality. Um, doing things the best I could, um, looking at only good violins as best as I could and, and learning and, and trying to, because by that point, really all I cared about was really expertise and really understanding um, who made these instruments, which is what I've been really interested in from the very beginning. But then I was able to really focus on that. So I, I divested myself of the two other companies, and now we're just a nice, small um, company, and we do things is the best way we know how. He said small. <laughs> your your juggernaut is very focused, and uh, I, I respect the hell out of that, Chris. Well, we have, we have four restorers, and we have one bone maker. We have one guy who does the photograph work full-time and which I decided to dedicate myself to quite a while ago and um, two, three people in the office and three salesmen. That's it. And me. That's great. That's been a a theme of yours since I I started speaking to you that the, the archive and the photographs and having a, a, a foundation of materials, which is your own, in order to build your expertise upon, like if if somebody brings you something which is labeled family of Galliano and you're intended to determine which maker it is, I mean, you you have a, a file which you've built yourself with reference material 
that you can walk your fingers through. And uh, I find that that sort of analog, I mean, having it digitalized is, is wonder, digitized is wonderful. Um, but there is something very different about um, the weight and feel of an instrument and the bones of it um, that photography, not on an iPad necessarily. Um, I mean, I, I, my first job was at Peter Preer's place and we would look through slides when bows came in. Um, and one of the first things you said to me at a VSA was to start my archive and, uh, to, even if I didn't end up being someone who had an eye, which I haven't become that person, that having my own archive was going to be very important for me knowing what the hell I was talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, part of it is, um, so if you have a memory where you, um, a visual memory that you, um, you see a violin to help you recall it, if you, um, have a photograph of it, that sort of helps you remember what you saw. Uh -huh. so, so the first part of an archive is recording what you've seen. And then this, the second level is cataloging a maker, mm -hmm. um, which goes to a different level of expertise. So you, for instance, during this COVID time, I've spent tremendous time going through, I think I did, I started with, um, let's see, I started with Joseph Filius Andrea Guarneri, and then I went on to Storioni and the Ruggeri family and the Rogeri family. Um, mm -hmm. And by cataloging, I mean finding every single photograph in every book or source um, and printing the, them up in the same way, the same yeah. format, and then sorting them into different groups. And it's pretty interesting um, how quickly the bad ones sort of stick out. And, yeah. and, and yeah. then as you, as you progress, you, you sort of sort them into groups and then you put them in order and then you can see how the maker evolved and, you know, because most makers, they start at point A and they end up in a different place. And it, it, especially, let's say Del Jezo, it's very hard to understand how he got from point A to point to, to from the beginning to end of his life. But if you put them all in order, it becomes extremely logical. Yeah. I've always felt like uh, his eyesight was going and he was in some sort of chronic pain because when I'm using a yeah. scraper and I am, something's going on that I'm distracted enough that I don't sharpen it, but I know that with pressure and experience, I can get through it. You, you move into, you know, five year periods through Doji's working. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In one day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, now, Chris Rooney, uh, we've talked about different arenas periods of your professional life, you moving through all these transitions. For younger people out there who are getting a handle on the different layers involved in uh, this umbrella of Luthiery, for you, what, what clues you into it's time for a change? It's time to explore this direction. Well, I think uh, first thing is don't be stubborn. Be um, You have to be aware of the different uh, opportunities that are out there for you, but then have an open mind to, to figure out what's your best course. And basically what's, what you're, what you're good at is what you enjoy and vice versa. So, and it comes down a lot to attention span. If you, not everybody, for instance, I, I have done restoration. I don't have the patience to sit down and really carefully restore a violin the way some of the people that work for me do who, who have this incredible attention span and patience. I don't have that at all. It's all personality. Yeah. And then uh, being a violin maker, um, you know, I, I, I put it down to if you're, if you can do the same thing for three months, then you're a restorer. If you can do the same thing, over and over for one month, you're a maker. If you can do the same thing, you know, for a day or two, then you're a repair person. <laughs> mm -hmm. If your attention span lasts about five minutes, then you're an expert. 
or a dealer. (laughs) (laughs) So for you personally, were there moments in your life, aha moments where you said, oh, it's time to shift my focus in this direction? Well, I always liked to figure out, I didn't even know when I started that expertise was a topic. Um, okay. I just thought it was sort of like magic, like you'd figure this out if you were by osmosis, by being around the violins. And then I met Dario Dottili, and and I watched and I took some violins to show him, and he went through a process to figure it out with his archive and, and you know, analyzing the details in a very logical way that all of a sudden I realized, oh, this is something I can learn. But it it took a great deal of dedication. Um, but that's I've been driven in that direction since you know since the very beginning. That's just what I was interested in: the history and figuring out how these things um, relate to each other, one to the. And I was always trying to figure out the truth. Mm. You know, if you're a truth seeker, you want to know the truth. There's so many fakes. If you want to be a detective and find the truth, it takes a heck of a lot of work. But it's, it's no different than any other profession. If you're going to be a doctor, you have to go study that and spend years to, to dedicate yourself to it. And that's what I decided to do. I've always found the 10,000 hours thing to be quite an understatement. <laughs> I think if you, if you put that up in order of magnitude and put it to, to 100,000 hours. I mean, I've always known... If I bring an instrument, speaking of Chris's, if I bring an instrument to Chris Germain, then he will talk to me about whether I've achieved the spirit of what I was apparently working for. If I bring an instrument and show it to you, you will tell me what model I was after, what maker, and then talk to me about the ways where I didn't quite hit the form and function. And those are two very different mindsets yeah but the fact that you think that way it's it's amazing and there's no way to get there except for you know having been handling these instruments for decades well if you if you think that those cremonese makers were geniuses and had figured something out which i do and the more i learn about them the more i realize the subtleties there's so many levels that um, you you know you don't really f- you don't figure that out when you're in violin making school and it takes a long time of seeing many of the great ones to really and to hear the great ones mm-hmm. to, to hear what you know what makes them work that then you realize that they're really your best teacher just seeing them and, um, yeah. and if you if you dedicate yourself to going to f- let's say the Florence Museum and seeing if you can get your hands on some of those instruments or the Ashmolean or, or in the National Music Museum and getting your hands on them or backstage at concerts and so forth and really spending the yeah. time seeing them, um, you know, that then you realize maybe a good start is to understand why they're so great. Um, but that's a, long, that's a long process to figure that out. So yeah. that's, that's kind of where I'm coming from. Um, and when I when I see somebody who's making an instrument that's kind of superficial, and is missing some of those small details when they add up, make all the difference in the world. Then then, I think that's that's at least where I'm coming from. It may be different than other people. I love that. It's a uh, it is hard to get in the mindset to be down into the method rather than. And this is whenever I have people that I'm talking to or teaching about violin making, I encourage them to work from the hip and instead of fussing backwards from the way they were taught. And uh, if, if you're making a certain maker, you have to start from the bones and work with confidence from there rather than making it the way you did. And then, I mean, Guad, for example, carefully spreading the ribs so that the top is wider. Yeah. Like you, you, you just, you have to, and adding tool marks at the end of a scroll carving, like 
Um, it's always going to come across false. You're not going to be down in the instrument and you're going to miss shit on the arching that is going to give you the sound that's going to make all your time worthwhile. Yeah. Mm. No, I, I, you've exactly described it, Chris, exactly how I, how I look at it. And you have to work with a certain rapidity, confidence, yeah. and then you will work to your, you have to work to your natural style. Um, if you're a fussy maker, um, it, then you're going to, you should make something that's naturally quite clean. But then if you're trying to force yourself to do something quick and rustic looking, <laughs> it's, it's going to look weird, you know? So yeah, it comes off weird. But it, a lot of you know, young makers, they'll say, well, no, I want to make my own thing. I don't want to slavishly copy something. And then my response to that is, well, that's, exactly what the Cremonese guys did not do. They followed a method. They, they worked within a certain framework with certain principles that were important, but then within those frameworks, each one of those people made things that look different from each other yeah. and sound different. Like you can hear the difference in an Andre Guarneri and a Rogeri. They're, they're coming out of the same pond, but they're two different makers within the God, I, I love Rogeri. I just, I love him. Rogeri or Rogeri? I do love Rogeri as well, but I, I know Rogeri is Brescia. I just, sorry, sorry, it's just going. Yeah, Rogeri is, I agree, is is, is uh, one of the great underappreciated makers. So you're somebody who's going to be written about, um, and now you're going to wax defensive and pretend that as an expert, you're the one who can focus for the least amount of time. Um, but when I say something like that, if we accept it, um, how would you like to be remembered, Chris? Oh, I mean, um, I don't really think that way, I guess. <laughs> I, I, I do this really because I want to learn and I want to do my best. And that's the, that's the reward. Like there's nothing greater than figuring out a new maker and what always happens once you learn a new maker that maybe nobody's ever figured out before, and then like a week later, they're everywhere. And another <laughs> one comes in, yeah. and then you get this shiver down your back, like, "Wow, this is there's some deity up there that's directing these things down for me to see." Yeah, they're everywhere. As soon as that's a lovely space to be in. Yeah, it's fun. You're definitely in a in a place which is. And at the forefront of, of a place which is the end of the last era, when expertise has gotten so much tighter that, and I, I'm in DC and I see this a lot, and uh, the certificates from 50 years ago, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, 25 years ago are glaringly inaccurate. Yeah. And it's the responsibility of the experts. And I stay out of it and in my capacity yeah. as a workshop manager. But, I, you know, I've uh, we have a fun game called Spot the Voler Brothers, you know. Yeah. And, uh, your job and what people seek you out for is to sometimes be blunt about the actual value of something which hasn't appreciated in the way its certificate indicated it would. Um, and I would love mm -hmm. to hear your thoughts on that and mm -hmm. what, what that's like. Well, look, um, when I was, I told you one of my first mentors was, was Dario. And I, I think where he went off the rails a little bit was um, he wanted to please people. He wanted to, when they came there, he wanted to tell them some, and including me, he, he, I'd take him four or five instruments and he put names on each one of them. And years later, not so many years, but a couple of years later, I started to realize. Six months later. <laughs> no, I started realizing uh, this is not really right. I don't, I disagree. Cause I was also looking in his archives too. And I was, and I started not being confident. And um, yeah. at the same time I was going to London and decided I needed to go meet Charles Beer. So I, I saved up some money and I took, what was it, $50,000, which was everything I had. And I decided I'm going to go in and buy a violin from him. 
uh, and he was really nice. And actually, he sold me something that was much better than I would have bought it at the auctions anyway. But um, from then on, every time I went to see him, he was ex- well. I mean, this this is the amazing thing about those those people is they're so generous with their time. If they see you're interested, yeah, and if they see you really want to listen and learn, it's incredible how much um, time and time and um, expertise they'll share with you. So uh, that's that's a that's about wonder. When people come around and they're full of wonder and want to learn, yeah, you'll, you'll bend over backwards to help Absolutely. that person. Yeah. Um, but to answer your question, you know, I, I have to face that question of disappointment each time. And, and, um, I see how Charles beer, he was tough. I mean, he's, he's just true. He's, he was true to the truth and is the rest of it is like, well, you try to be as nice as you can. And some people go out furious. I've got a couple of Boston Mm -hmm. symphony people that don't come in my shop for 25 years because they didn't know what I told them. So that's just the way it goes. (laughs) My goodness. Yeah. Uh, Chris Rooney, I, I've got one final question for you. Uh, do you ever miss being at the workbench? No, not at all. Um, not at all. Well, uh, I'm just so busy and having so much fun doing what I'm doing. I uh, Now in my new part. Oh, that's good. <laughs> um, they found my tools, which were hidden away. The last, the last thing I did was I made a Phileas scroll when I was in Venice for a week. Um, and I found that scroll. So maybe I'll make a, a violin to go with it. Oh, that's great, man. I, I'm just starting a, a, a Phileas model right now. There's the three or four best sounding violins I ever made were after a, a Phileas Andreas that came across my bench and I made yeah. one really short 350, 351. Um, Fantastic. Do you know what year it is? If if it's early or late or middle or I do, but it's fifteen feet away under four drawers full of drawings, Chris. So okay. I'll... <laughs> I'll you yeah. Oh yeah, but you know, I have to just add. Um, I would say one of my proudest accomplishments is building the workshop. Um, that I'm really proud. I I saw Charles Beer do that in his business having people that by working together and all talented people working together in a certain way, um, they each achieved more than they could individually as a group and sort of pushed the boundaries of restoration work beyond, you know, that's, that's something I enjoy maybe as much as anything is, is, you know, I consider myself the head of the workshop. Fantastic. I, I connect to that and I, I get a lot of joy from that. Yeah. Just putting putting a good team together and then being able to provide a good space with a lot of clarity, good parameters, bringing good work in. Yeah. Um, that's lovely. And that's that's the shop where the players you want to see come back to. My, my first shop experiences were under foreman who were jealous of any attention, who were jealous of any um, work coming in. And uh, it, it was a, it was an anemic, unhealthy environment. And I love having people under me who can focus in ways that I can't. So that yeah. my job as the manager is to give them the things that they thrive on. And uh, we get so much more work that way. It's, it's yeah, really lovely. It's- that's a then you see the results of in the instruments it's um there's there's nothing more gratifying than seeing the end of a restoration job that's uh, something that you've really brought back to life and preserved and it gives everybody that so much but by the way i've had i've had some bad workshops in the past so i i i've learned i've learned how difficult it is but um once once you kind of figure it out, out how it works we we have the same people there for 20 years you know good for you chris yeah yeah keep them when you get the good ones keep them yes yeah yeah <laughs> um i i want to thank you for your time especially this week yeah, uh where there's no here or there for you um and i'm wishing that you get settled soon and uh 
the work keeps coming. Great. Well, lovely to talk to you guys. And I can't wait to see you guys sometime. Um, well, who knows when and where. Some, some future thing. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm vaccinated. My employees are almost vaccinated. I'm going to get to take yeah. my mask off. There you go. Nine hours a day. Oh, nice. Oh, nice. And, but there's no Oberlin this summer, right? Yeah. No. There's no yeah, Oberlin. Oh, man. Yeah. I don't know. Mm-hmm. What a drag. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny, Chris. I, 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 you know, I, I went by Carriage House for years after you sold it because I was making and I would make loops down. And I thought when I moved out to D.C. from Nebraska, I was like, man, I'm going to be up in Boston and Philly all the time. And yeah. four years, I haven't gone anywhere. Well, you don't have time for that. Yeah. There's time. So we'll, we'll have a glass of whiskey. I'll be down your way one of these days. I had been planning that for a long time, so we'll try to get that done. That'd be great. Mm-hmm. Great to see your lovely, lovely place, Rosie, when I was out there. Um, thank you for signing my showroom door. Yeah. I will always remember that. And yeah. for sharing your story of putting an all through your hands. <laughs> The confession. That's right. Wasn't that you in the confessional? You confessed to Saint Omobono that you put an all through your hand. Oh yeah. Ooh, (laughs) on a quarter size mitten ball violin with peg box wall that was about two millimeters wide thick. That that violin was thirsty for blood. It needed its hundred year drink. It was hanging off my palm. (laughs) Goodness. All right. All right. Lovely. Well, everybody, we've all had a long day. Yeah. Y'all go get some sleep. <laughs> have a beer. Good Talk luck. This okay. All right. Have a nice night, you guys. Bye. This is Nick. This is Nick. And this is Dakota. Dakota. Uh, wasn't that guy amazing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel like he amazeth me. <laughs> no, he, he's one of the good Chris's. He's yeah. one of the good Chris's. <laughs> So I got a call a while back from Mm. Sal Signorelli. You made that name up. No, it's real. It's actually his son called me because Sal is 90 years old and he's this old Rochester like legacy person. Okay. And he's moved to Dallas and he was ready to sell things, sell his collection, sell his tone wood. I bought a bunch of his tone wood. Actually, I, I bought pretty much all of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then sent uh, probably about half of it your way. Yeah. Which was really fun. Well, what happened what I, was I was like, tell him I will buy all of it. And then you were like, yeah, let's split it. And I was like, excellent. <laughs> all part of your plan. Yeah. <laughs> I got a little greedy. I'm trying to be here now. I'm not planning stuff. <laughs> I'm not in it to win it. So, so you sent me this little calculator that is for, it's for calculating spruce density. Uh-huh. Or any, anything's density. Anything's density. And I got out my measuring tools. I did not do the dip test. Which is fun. I didn't, I didn't put anything in my bathtub to put it in water, but I did the measurements. And so I send you these calculations and you're like, uh, most of those are a little too dense for spruce. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but I thought that dense is good. Like I thought that you want those grain lines on the top of your violin, like as tight as possible, therefore being super dense. So what gives? Why, why is there such a thing as too dense? The specific density of wood, uh, it's just a measurement you can take of any material, which gives you what seems like an arbitrary scale, but, uh, it gives you its weight versus its dimensions. So mm-hmm. you know how dense it is per imaginary unit, whatever unit you're using. And if I'm making an instrument that I want to hit the same results over and over and over again, then I want to know what the density is so that I can try and reach those results with different materials. Okay, let me, I think I might understand. So if you are used to working with a certain number of density, then when you're carving your plates, you can stick to similar plate carving and get a similar result. Right. And uh, a similar result is important because if you have a clientele that's paying you a certain price, then they're going to expect it to sound like the fiddle they tried 
which mm-hmm. gave them what they wanted. Um, so this comes from Dadan, Pete Goodfellow, and Hans Pluhar. Got it. And it's also based upon um, the Harrison Sheldon number of merit system. But uh, Pete Goodfellow and Hans Pluhar, who are dear friends of mine, came up with a way to make it accessible with any stick of wood. And you basically, you take it, the density is a, an equation which gives you the dimensions of the, so violin making wood comes as a wedge. It comes out of the tree mm-hmm. like a tall vertical pie slice if it's quarter slung. So, mm-hmm. so not just cut straight across like you would with a knife, but you get these pie slices out of it. And at the thinnest point of the pie slice and the thickest point of the pie slice, you have a thickness of the wedge. And then the length of the wedge and the height of the wedge. And then you multiply that by its weight. And you come up with, I believe it's a Janka is the word, um, specific density scale. And ideal light violin making maple is 0.55 on the specific density Janka scale. That's our modern... uh, you know, uh, that's the thing we put our hand on the Bible and go, I, I would love some wood like that. Okay. And I believe um, most of what I measured was above 0.55. Uh, and actually, you measured a bunch of Sitka spruce. Okay. And uh, it shouldn't have been above point. It was above 0.45. Okay. So I, and I was just speaking about maple. Um, okay. And- well, I've already forgotten clearly. It's, well, it, it all just washes over you like a yeah. like a, a bucket of numbers. Uh-huh. It's just, you know, have you ever just been waterboarded with numbers? Not lately. No. So there's this thing I was uh-huh. thinking about for Omo where we, we like had somebody trying to hold back some information and they're like, we're going to fingerboard him. And no, then and no. then like they just get a bucket full of fingerboards and they put a, a cloth on his face and they just pour the fingerboards <laughs> on his face and instead of drowning it's just beating the hell out of him and then he tells it oh my god and you can imagine the sound too it'd just be like <laughs> and then they're like tell us where the low density maple is and he's just weeping because his lungs are full of blood great i love it it sounds like a great community experience and we should all do it <laughs> So, okay, yeah. okay. So, so back back to what I'm saying. Okay, so this the spruce yeah. that I calculated the density for. Yeah. I said ideally you wanted under 0.38 specific density. Okay. And most of it came out in the 0.4 to 0.5. Yeah. So are there makers out there that like super dense that are like, yes, give me the 0.5 cuz I know how to carve that. Some and point okay. uh, as I told you, like above 0.44, you're really you're really pushing it. Like okay. I, I'll use that stuff for viola, mm-hmm. and not very many people agree with me. Um, what that what that affords you is if you have your arching on lock, if you really know what you're doing with your arching shapes and with your base bar to re-stiffen the system you can thin the wood out thinner than you would and really get some punch. Um, But you're flirting with disaster because the thinner you take the wood, not only are you inviting people to have your name in their mouth when they measure the thickness and don't bother with the characteristics of the wood, Mm -hmm. um, but it is the thinner it gets more prone to to cracking and warping. Mm -hmm. So is it safe to say that the pieces that I kept, which were more dense than the ones that I passed on to you, are just excellent for people making their first build, trying it out for the first time? Perhaps. Yeah. And then that's (laughs) this. Well, this has been the difficulty. It's like you're talking to somebody who likes denser spruce at this point. Mm -hmm. I, I had a lot of bad experiences with Engelman instruments, which warped out so badly I had to rebuild them for people so I've learned how to use that heavy stuff okay okay but when you're when you're dealing with a a, a janka hardness that you can actually learn how to use um, you learn what you can do to make it work mm-hmm. above 0.45 is going to be a 
blazing, blazing loud instrument, and you're going to lose a lot of warmth. Okay. Um, what I would do with that that wood that's higher density, and if you sent me all the low density stuff and kept all the high density stuff, then I ripped you off, my friend, and we need to renegotiate. Oh, I've kept plenty. Don't worry. Good. Good. Yeah, I've got lots of good stuff. So that's that's great block wood. That's great base bar wood. If you have an instrument which needs some extra support, maybe has wolves need some damping, you put in that heavier stuff and it will eat some of the overtones. Ooh. Okay. Now my wheels are spinning. I got a I got a problem instrument that ooh. Okay. Okay. Um, well, I know I haven't talked about making my instrument in a while, but, um, there's, Have you ever there's been fingerboarded? New... no, I haven't been fingerboarded. <laughs> it comes off dirty, but it's really not. It's just so awful. as I was saying, oh, sorry. I have, I have stuff coming down the pipeline as far as making my instrument. And I do plan to finish it. I just don't have an announcement at this time. Um, it has nothing to do with fingerboarding. You've been and, fingerboarding down the pipeline. <laughs> and uh, on that note, yeah, we hope everyone out there is doing awesome and having a return to normalcy. God, uh, Chris, always fun. Always. Did lovely. you know that Calvin Coolidge's campaign coined the term normalcy, which was not a word before that? I did not, and now I do, and now we all know. Uh, everybody. <laughs> I just love you guys. And yeah. yeah, I hope you have a return to Coolidge-ness. Yes, a return to Coolidge. We love you out there. Stay sane. Bye, Tonewood off Rosie. <laughs> yes, bye. Oma was an all-luthier podcast produced by Rosie Deloach, Chris Jacoby, and Jerry Lynn. The show is edited by Jason Peoples, music by Invoke Sound. If you enjoy our show, you can help us out by leaving an iTunes review or becoming a Patreon member at patreon.com slash omopod, where you can get your very own Omo swag. We'd love to hear from you, so reach out to us at mail at omopod.com or call the Omo phone at 240-686-5345. Thanks for listening. Our good friend Mitch Mooring posted a link today. No, he, he posted a story that said, I got big cracks and I cannot lie. And it made me think that um, you need to make a song about that. There is a whole song about it. I mean, you other Luthers can't deny. Yes. When a human walks in with an itty bitty case and a skeptical look on their face, the top's been sprung. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was just off the off the cap. Off you the did cap. it. You did it.